Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to The Ringer Podcast Network. The Ringer is launching a new podcast from the guys who brought you Cespedes Family Barbecue called Baseball Barbecue. Hosted by Jake Mintz and Jordan Schusterman, they're bringing you the good, the bad, and the utterly bizarre corners of the baseball world and everything that makes it special. Throughout the offseason, they'll dive into the rabbit hole on some of their favorite fascinations from the home run derby to baseball brawls and much more. Once the season returns, they'll break down the latest MLB news and developments. You can subscribe to Baseball Barbecue on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Hungry Homies, today's episode of House of Carbs on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by World Central Kitchen. World Central Kitchen is the not-for-profit, non-governmental organization devoted to providing meals in the wake of natural disasters. Founded in 2010 by D.C.'s own Chef Jose Andres, the whole point is to solve the problem of hunger immediately following a disaster. We are in the middle of a disaster, and the WCK relief team is working across America to safely distribute individually packaged fresh meals in communities that need support. They are now serving tens of thousands of meals daily in some of our biggest cities like New York and Los Angeles, right here in Washington, D.C. They're launching initiatives across America to deliver fresh, hot meals to hospitals and clinics, fighting on the front lines while keeping Local restaurants in business as well with subsidies and grants they're working on. You can directly help the heroes in hospitals and clinics who are fighting for us, and you can help keep your local restaurants alive. Go to theringer.com slash WCK to donate. The Ringer, in a collaboration with World Central Kitchen, we're trying to raise $250,000 if you have the means. It's an unbelievably great and useful cause that helps our hospital heroes, emergency workers, and local restaurants. Please give whatever you can. The money's going directly to World Central Kitchen. It's a charitable donation. Once again, that's theringer.com slash WCK. homies, my culinary comrades. We've done it. We're doing our best here in this Q-Life moment house of carbs. The food podcast for the hungry people, by the hungry people, with me, your hungry host, Joe House. We're trying to sort it out for you, my taste buds. On the show this week, the in Imitable Jason Gay. He is a friend of the pod. He's been a belly source for us on the ground in New York City. He is a writer for the Wall Street Journal, and he had an article uh, about 10 days ago, Confession of a Burned Out Quarantine Chef, because like so many of us, Jason hit the stay-at-home moment, the onset of it with great enthusiasm for cooking for his family and his enthusiasm as this thing has dragged on has waned a little. So we had to talk to Jason, make sure everything was okay. Anytime you get Jason Gay 
on the line and he's got a little bit of time. You get to cover a lot of ground. So we do that. And I'm very, very uh, appreciative of Jason giving us the time and his insights. Let's just get in that belly with Jason Gay. All right, my taste buds. Had to check in with one of our favorite guests. He has been the belly on the ground for us in New York City. Jason Gay from the Wall Street Journal. What's happening, pal? Joe, how are you? You know, I I, I have to say that like, you know, Murrow did during the London Blitz, you have been sort of guiding me through this, you know, crisis, listening to your voice, hearing the calm, measured tones. Uh, it, you know, it, it's it's one of the things that's getting me through here. Well, it's very, very nice of you to say. I feel like I should apologize uh, a little bit, but I'll just I'll just accept the compliment. It's uh, we're, it, we're in this Q life mode where overdoing the generosity, the graciousness, just feels like the right play. So, so thank you. Listen, somebody has to be nice to each other. You know, I thought we went through this like two week period at the beginning of all this, where we thought, okay, now we're going to have a reset culturally, and everybody's going to be nice to each other. We're all going to be empathetic, and that's just flown right at the window. We're just back to being the same jerks to each other that we were yeah. before all this. It's absurd. I cannot believe what a toxic environment we so quickly returned to. It's terrible. Well, I, even our, our our totems, even friends of ours, you know, in our cycle of life, circle of life. I mean, how are we at the point in the game here where Allison Roman and uh, Chrissy Teigen have have beef? How did that happen? You know, how are we at this moment? Right. When the when the when the chefs are fighting, you know, things have gone completely off the rail. But I think they've made up. I think that they have quashed this. And uh I think so too. Which is great. You know, yes. it's going to end with some sort of joint cooking show, I think. I sure hope so. That would be terrific. Well, speaking of joy of cooking, um, you wrote a story a couple of weeks ago, and, and honestly, I was worried about you. So I wanted to reach out. I wanted to check in. Story is Confession of a Burned Out Quarantine Chef. Yeah. And Jason, you kind of laid out how at the beginning of this stay at home, lifestyle you had all of the you were invigorated you were enthused you I had were... great aspirations i was going to be the next julia or jacques i was going to like master chef the hell out of this quarantine you know i was going to buy all the ingredients learn all the spices you know just everything from scratch joe and you know i was going to the butcher and buying cuts of meat that i never would have dreamed using before and i had a great three week run, maybe, you know, where I was, you know, uh, extremely motivated, extremely driven. But I think like everything else, it just, you know, the more this became a grind, uh, the more, especially something like going out and shopping, you know, going to the grocery store became a grind. It just wore me down. And also, I'm lazy. I mean, let's face it. You know, I mean, there was only so much, you know, brining I was going to be capable of doing in this lifetime. So, you know, I, I the, the, there's a lot more um, uh, frozen pizza happening in this household now. There's a lot less uh, multiple ingredient cooking going on. Thankfully, my wife, who is a wonderful uh, cook, has sort of stepped in and uh, filled the void that I've left behind. And she's a vegetarian, so. Uh, that's important here, you know, because uh, I really went on a carb spree here. I don't know about you, Joe, but like, you know, I was definitely eating to feel better 
here. And that's always been my sort of disposition. And um, fine for a few weeks, but uh, once the state of play became this was what we were going to be, you had to come up with some better options. Well, I'm here to tell you, in the first place, there's no such thing as too much carbs here on House of Carbs. But uh, and of course, I'm 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 following that same trajectory, that same path. There are infinite ways that we are enjoying pasta in my household. But I I also think what you're describing is the eminently relatable experience and phenomena for all of us. Like the enthusiasm, small e, at the outset of stay at home around the idea of having time to try things that normal life, normal tempo uh, don't permit was was titillating and kind of exciting, right? Absolutely. And, and for me, you know, and, and, and being totally earnest here, uh, for me, uh, one thing I really do do enjoy about cooking is it, it, it uh, relieves stress. It's an anti-anxiety exercise for me. I like the whole preparation part of it. I like cutting and chopping and doing all that stuff. It actually takes my mind off of things. You got to sort of pay attention to stuff so you don't lose a finger or something like that. Like all that ritual, I found extremely comforting. And I'm sure if I return to it, and there have been a few, you know, you know, minor uh, uh, returns to form in the kitchen here, but uh, uh, it was something that I think the process of it was as satisfying as um, doing it uh, or the end result, making the product, um, making the meal. I should say one part of this, which I thought was also extra motivational, was that you know uh, we were we have a neighbor who works in the hospital, and uh, you know, and this is early stages. This is in March. You know, really when things are getting very bleak in New York City and you're talking about, you know, people are leaving, uh, you know, the hospitals are starting to feel really overwhelmed. And we sort of set about in our building a plan of like, okay, let's make some meals for this guy. You know, he was home, his family got out of town, but he was staying at home. You know, he was working long hours, obviously in an incredibly high stress environment. So let's cook for him. And I have to tell you that experience of cooking for somebody which I'd never really done before, you know, just sort of making meals and coming up with an idea of what this person would like was an incredible motivation, you know, to do it right and make good things. And, you know, uh, I don't know, surprise this person. I just had never done anything like that. And I found it kind of an interesting experience because, you know, usually accustomed to cooking for my wife and two whiny children who don't want anything but uh, microwave pizza bagels. Well, it's a a great point. And I haven't had that opportunity. There's nothing keeping me from cooking for somebody outside of my circle. I mean, the, the, my circle of, in terms of, of cooking is first family and then cooking with friends. And you want to impress your friends with your acumen and your insights and whatever you've learned. And you want them to enjoy the meal, but it, there's an entirely different dynamic cooking for a person that you you know, but maybe not as an inner circle kind of, of person. And you're really working on sustenance, fuel for this person because they're on a noble mission. That's a pretty high bar to, to, to hit. I mean, no, I'm, I feel it, but also like you don't want to be too fancified here, right? right. Because you know, you want things to be able to be reheatable the next day or for a week, you know, if you're making a lasagna or something like that, you don't want to go completely overboard. But I mean, this whole thing, and I know this is something that you've talked about on the show with a whole group of other people, but, you know, and we're both good friends with our uh, mutual pal, Adam Rappaport, but talking about just sort of what is going to happen, you know, hopefully when this subsides, are people going to be the kind of, you know, 
kitchen whizzes that they became during this? Are they going to retain some of the knowledge that they have or are they going to run right out the door as quickly as possible to have a restaurant experience and sit down and eat and have those kind of things? I think all those things are actually capable of happening. I mean, I think people will continue to like cook at home because they know how to do stuff that they might not have been able to do before. I think they're going to, you know, order takeout in the way that they're ordering takeout now. And I think, you know, the takeout, I don't want to say a revolution because I don't think any restaurant enjoys this scenario, but I think it's sort of made people think different ways about the way you can get takeout and what kind of places are available for takeout. But I think that, you know, the ultimate is, you know, when you're able to return to the kind of normalized restaurant experience that we all crave. And I mean, I just think that I want to get back to that sort of, I feel it'll be like the roaring twenties, even though neither one of us was alive in the roaring twenties, but I feel like we could have the roaring twenties once more. And I think we could have another restaurant revolution. The question of course is, what kind of environment are we returning to when we're going to return to it and who are going to be the players? Cause we know there's been a great deal of pain in that industry already. Yeah. And that that's the, of those sort of pondering questions, the when is, is the piece of it that feels to me most impenetrable because we don't have, you know, the last 60 days have been, I would characterize as like, data accumulation like we we've gotten as a country smarter about how the virus um, will affect various demographics and you know what kind of treatments uh now we're, we we don't have a treatment but you know treatments that might help impact things and you know what kind of uh flood of folks into hospitals what that looks like but we don't have any of the forward step stuff that will allow us to return to normal interaction, humans bumping into other humans kind of, of, of life. And that's most prominently sort of, you know, and, and dr- dramatically impactful on restaurants. Cause like it's the most communal place we, we encounter in regular life. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, there's this whole argument that we know that's going on in the country right now about, you know, the merits of reopening versus public health and, you know, are states moving too fast in the places that they're reopening or in the states where they're not, including New York State where I am, are they not reopening soon enough? Are they waiting too long? Are they locking down so much that they're going to just irreparably damage the economy? All those are legitimate conversations to have. And I don't think they're binary. I don't think you can, I think you can be completely both. I completely would love the economy to reopen. I want to see it all back soon. I also am incredibly invested in making sure that public health, you know, concerns are met here and standards are met. And we can do all of those things and achieve all of those goals, hopefully, you know, in, on parallel tracks. I do feel though there's an interesting conversation that's happening that's that's not happening, which is outside of this domain. It's just a people's just genuine genuine comfort level and getting back to these things. If you look at the places in the world that are starting to reopen and starting to return restaurants and coffee shops and some of those semblances of pre-pandemic life, they're not packed. It's not like a situation where people are just rushing in and sitting down at a table of six. It's not that kind of environment. People are not uh, you know, just charging out the door to go do it. There's trepidation there. There, of course, are some sort of, you know, there are, there are some guardrails in place, you know, with separations and waiters wearing masks and all that kind of stuff. But it's not like you just flip a switch and you return to what it once was. There are some exceptions I know on the internet. I've seen some of these videos of like insanely crowded diners and things like that. But by and large, in the places that have reopened, it's going to be a slow 
return to normal. It's not just going to shoot up like that, I don't think. No, unless there's a treatment or vaccine, you know, um, that are widely available. I think that's that's exactly right. Some of the ways that we are seeing the stories that I'm seeing coming out of the restaurant industry um, are, in fact, you know, uh, folks observing what's happening in other parts of the world that have, you know, seem like they have the virus more in the rearview mirror. David Jenkins has been great on this, by the way. Yes, so you beat me to the punch. He's been my primary resource, David Chang. I think this is like this whole other side to him, which, you know, he's obviously a pretty, um, has a a man of great diversified interest. But, you know, this whole idea of like, I'm going to be your go-to source for like how restaurants may do this now is pretty fascinating. I agree. And I will say some of what I'm seeing here on the East Coast, you know, Southern driven because the weather is warm. Places are are thinking about how to to leverage outdoor space, and that that's like a safe way. There's a restaurant in um, Vienna, Virginia, that's talking about using its parking lot and and using spaces like you can come reserve a space, and then they'll bring um, sanitized tables and chairs to you, and you can sit in your space. And you, if you want to eat in your car in that space, you can do it. But when those things start to happen in the DMV, which they haven't yet. I don't believe. Do you feel a responsibility to to patronize them? That do you, do you think you're going to go out and try try to do some of those things? No, I'm not um, <laughs> willing. You know, I, I've been doing my part uh, with takeout, and we've tried to be very diverse. You know, tried all kinds of different restaurants, and we've been very in, insistent on ordering only from independent restaurants, like no chains, no national chains. Um, so the, the the guys who are most kind of disadvantaged, most vulnerable, yep. most you know least uh, access to to capital, those are the folks that we want our um, takeout business, our delivery business, you know, sort of focused on. But I'm not in a hurry to go participate in a social experiment, and until there is some modicum of you know testing or assurances around temperature taking and in you know those those kinds of those inputs that can give you a level of comfort around the health proposition until that stuff is in place i'm just not in a hurry to go be a guinea pig yeah it, it, i'm of two minds of it there is part of me that has always enjoyed being like one of the only customers walking into a restaurant for like a late lunch on like a weekday afternoon right you walk in yes. there just you know wide open and i'm like this is where i want to be but city dining in America is often an elbow to elbow experience, a place, especially in a place like New York City. I mean, quite literally, you're elbow to elbow with the people who are sitting right next to you. And you just kind of can't believe they jam as many people into these places as they do. It's just hard to envision a scenario in which you return to that anytime soon. I was watching, you know, I like the bike racing. Okay. So I was watching this old weird video of a Tour de France team and they were showing videos of the team out like having, you know, cheese and uh, beers at a, you know, Alpine village. And it's just one of those places where like, you know, it's so packed that like vapor is rising off the forehead to the guys. And it's just kind of, you'd walk in, you know, you'd open the door and be like, well, there's nobody in here. And I mean, there's no, no way I can get in here. 
I, it made me uh, emotional, you know, because I've been in those kinds of places. I know the energy, and those places are often the places where you, you know, look back on your life and say, like, I'll never forget that night when. Very seldom is the never forget that night, the night where you sat alone at the bar in an empty restaurant. It's almost invariably the big table, the crowded experience, getting into the place that you never thought you'd get into, closing down the joint, all that kind of shit. And I really, really just, you know, that to me will feel like a miracle when it returns. I, f- I couldn't agree more. I will not even indulge. Like part of the way that I've tried to cope with this, my own psychology, I won't indulge that path down kind of that nostalgia because, you know, really? uh, yeah. as, a, as a defense mechanism, I have to believe that that's so far out in the future. I can't really imagine it. The only thing that I will say that I'm looking forward to more than anything else. It's not dining. I want to go sit down at a bar and have somebody make me a martini. That's really what I pine for more than than anything else. Yeah, that's not something that I have taken advantage of. I know that there are places that are offering cocktails to go. There are a whole bunch of them around that, like, you know, will give you like a mason jar with a couple uh, of cocktails to go, which I think is great. I love making cocktails at home. Like the food part of this, I spent the first couple of weeks really diving in deep to my bartender game. I got a new shaker. I was looking at tinctures. I was like going all in here. And we are back down to like tequila on the rocks here at my house. I mean, <laughs> hey, tequila on the rocks, very underrated. Super for the hangover the next day. I know. Listen, absolutely, which is a consideration here. I mean, you know, look, I, you know, we're no different than anybody else in this. That, you know, I was looking at this like, wow, this is going to be an interesting two weeks, and then two weeks becomes a month, and then a month becomes two months, and now you and I both have school age children. They're talking about homeschooling in the fall, and I'm like, you have to be kidding me! You're thinking of this now as a year, and you have to pace yourself like anything else. You cannot be having like three Negronis a night. That's just not good public health, you know? So we've tried to tone it down here at uh, bartending headquarters, but I, I like anything else, like I, I and I, I can relate to what you're talking about with going to a bar because I think that like cocktail culture is also a culture of ritual, you know, like the whole process of actually making cocktail. I find that equally like stress relieving. I enjoy the shaking and the, mixology of it, experimenting with it, screwing it up, um, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I think there's real value in kind of like, you know, definitely doing more of the daddy's home five o'clock drink time like thing, but it's not two or three. I think we're, we're, we're kind of cutting it off at one, maybe one and a half. If we're going, I mean, that that's laudable. I, I have a confession for you. I've been drinking very, very little over the past um, two months. And so, so little, in fact, I've lost weight. Like I, I've probably down, you know, five or six pounds. Now, I will say when we order takeout, we try and choose places that offer alcohol options yeah. because we want to help their bottom line. Um, and we know that the alcohol is a way to do that. And I'll just take like a small taste of whatever it is, whatever right. margarita concoction or, or whatever mixed drink the right. place is offering. But we're doing that um, when we order in. I I, uh, I did last night fall off the wagon. I had a birthday uh, and we made a great big pitcher of gin martinis 
and and I had my hand in a in a in a sangria concoction, and I am extremely hungover right now, which is uh, it is probably for the best that the folks can't see the video of of today's uh, discussion. Yeah, but I am dragging. You look great. I, I have to tell you, um, <laughs> I made Southside's not that long ago for my wife, who's a gin hater, and she drank it and didn't know she was having gin. That was a real moment of pride for me because, like, well done. Correctly, you're not getting sort of overwhelmed by that gin. Um, to your point about losing weight, one thing that is kind of funny, and I've had this, you know, I, I drank more than you, it sounds like. But I've lost weight also. And it does make me wonder because I certainly don't feel like I'm holding back around here. Like I'm eating everything that's not nailed to the floor. But it does make you think about, man, I ate a lot of garbage walking around the world in my life. You know? You're absolutely right. <laughs> Pieces of bread at home that's probably a lot healthier than just like the three o'clock. Hey, that's a taco store I've never been to. <laughs> like, you know? There's definitely something that's been cut out of my eating regimen that that has contributed. This is not just alcohol because I've never been a big like drink at home kind of guy anyway. Um, So I but my social drinking, it's only like, you know, twice a week at most, you know, Mm -hmm. most often like once a week. It it can't be the case that I lost six pounds because I'm not having three beers, you know, on on a Thursday. My for me is, you know, I had to travel a lot in my job and that's been out the window for the past couple of months. So no airplanes and no club sandwiches at the hotel at 1030 at night. That's just not happening, you know? Yeah, it's true. Maybe that alone has got me down a few. It could be. That could be. That could be the thing for sure. Um, Let's talk a little bit about what you are cooking in your household when you're cooking and or and or what your wife is cooking. You got two kids (laughs) under the age of eight, which means you've got some challenging palates. What's going on there in the gay household? Well, so there's um, a bit of a um, disagreement in philosophy between my wife and I about whether or not we should be. Pre, I always get this wrong. Is it prefix or price fix? You know, when the, when the, sure, you can't get it wrong. This is House of Carbs. She likes to say, like, today we are having oatmeal for breakfast, and y'all can just take a hike if you don't like it. Whereas I like to, like, I'm a little bit like the Waffle House. If the kid wants to have a waffle, he can have a waffle. If she wants to have a pancake, she can have a pancake. You know, we like to mix it up around here. I, I, I like to rise to the challenge. So, you know, breakfast is something I think that we both. I don't know. I just take a lot of pleasure in it. You know, I always think about like that scene in the casino, you know, where Pesci, like, you know, no matter where he was, he was home at 7 a.m. to give his kid pancakes. Wasn't that something like that? Yes. And like, you know, to me, that's like as good as it gets in terms of like a family meal ritual. So there's that. Lunchtime is kind of my uh, bailiwick because my wife is a school teacher. So her day is just locked up. You know, she's yeah. in classes virtually. My kids are taking class and she's teaching classes in another room. So it's a little helter skelter around here. So that's a world of a lot of grilled cheeses, some hot dogs, some peanut Great. butter, and jelly, mixing some vegetables in there, get them some pepper, some celeries, uh, some, you know, uh, what, what do they call baby carrots, uh, some broccoli on occasion. And then dinner time, you know, we're kind of bouncing around depending on like, you know, how thick the cupboard is, right? You know, because I think, you know, the grocery thing we talked about earlier, you know, that has become a real interesting dynamic, right? For a lot of us, that's our kind of like confrontation with reality because you're, 
you know, among uh, people who are all kind of like masked up and separated and the whole experience is completely and utterly changed. So it's not like you want to run out to the grocery store all the time. And so we just kind of like, I actually find in a weird way, the most interesting challenges are the ones where you're like, we got nothing here. What are we going to do? Right. Trying to pull a rabbit out of your hat, you know, like that. Yeah. Yeah. So like we've been a little bit of that. We've had some interesting takeout. We did lobster. I know oh. it's extremely extravagant, but it was for Mother's Day, and my wife yeah. is a big lobster holic, and uh, that was hilarious. Uh, we had no lobster crackers, so they took a pair of pliers and were using pliers to crack the lobsters. That's um, great. Yeah, yeah, it was something. You know, I didn't think that. Uh, uh, I, I wasn't sure about the optics of that. You know, <laughs> lobsters amid a pandemic. It sounds kind of tacky to say the least, vulgar. Um, but uh, you know. My wife's it was it was Mother's Day, man. That's not, what you got to do. Not, I regret nothing. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, your point on the anxiety of grocery shopping—that's also got have to be like super relatable and and something that all of us are are experiencing because it really is. I am the like the designated you know um, out of the house person in our household, and I'm trying to make the runs to the grocery last eight to 10 days. Yeah. Now the hard thing about that is bread. Like, you, you know, my, my son likes sourdough bread and yeah. you know, that doesn't have an eight to 10 day shelf life either in terms of his consumption or just if it, you know, hang, have it hanging around that long. Um, and it, it is funny you talking about, you know, your flexibility. I do find myself in this mode where I'm in a little bit of a short order cook mode. Like, what would you like today, son? What 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 can we make? What how's the palate this morning? What are you in the mood for? And I'm sure there's a lot of things wrong with that in terms of parenting and the psychology of of indulgence here. But for whatever reason, it makes me feel good. I I want to be accommodating. I I agree with that 100. percent And you know, we have certainly made clear the the idea of food as comfort. But it, you know, it, it is this kind of thing too that, you know, it can be this restorative quality to it too. You know, I think for in my home, like having that family meal. And here's the funny thing, I think. You know, so before all this happened, my wife's schedule is extremely busy during the day. Because I work at a newspaper, my schedule kind of ramps up and gets funky like in the late part of the day, early evening because of deadlines and stuff. So we had a battle about family dinner. You know, we weren't having a lot of family dinners or at least sure. not you know, that would, you know, make my wife happy. And, you know, there is a great deal of uh, evidence to support the idea that family dinners are an incredibly important thing for the development of a family and a child and marriage and all that kind of good stuff. Um, we weren't doing it enough. Now we do it all the time. Now we're doing it every day. And I find it very funny that we've settled into this groove now where we're now actually saying, you know what? I don't need to eat with the family tonight. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I went for a bike ride actually last night during dinner hour. So, you know, we're kind of backing away. We've just over family dinnered ourselves. But, uh, you know, look, you know, the kids are five and seven. It's not like we're sitting around talking about current events right now. But... Yeah, the, the curious thing of that, it, it is hilarious. We are we've we've t- also taken great um, pride and comfort that we can get our kid to come eat at the table with us because that's that's the. That is not the norm, but like the whole point, and I think, you know, the the merits of family dinner dry, derive from the fact that like the kid has had some kind of experience during the day that we aren't part of that he can come tell us about. And there's an interaction that way and we can share how 
uh, what, what's been going on in each of our days. And there's a whole communication there. He already knows what happened dur- dur- during my day. And he know we already know what happened during his day. So all we're talking about, how, how's the rice tonight? Did I do a good job? You know? <laughs> no, it is true. It's true. And like, you know, you have to be careful too. Like if you, um, you know, pull out all the stops on one of these family dinners and make the kids exactly what they want. They're going to want that every night. So you got to kind of ration, like giving them exactly what they want. You know, that's right. That's an important part of this too. I agree with you. That's exactly right. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear, you know, the story talked about some pretty outlandish stuff. Uh, you know, there was a stick involved. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Some forgotten pieces of toast. I will say this, the cheese puff pancakes. I know it was like, halfway in just just some some merits to this savory pancakes are delicious savory pancakes are delicious kimchi pancakes we both know are delicious scallion oh. pancakes are delicious yes what do i miss a good scallion pancake that'd be fantastic to have God. right you just put it on my on my tongue I, i'm dying for one now <laughs> but, but the part of it the column that i uh that that was most near and dear to my heart was the morning coffee with anxiety you know just the idea of like Pouring that first, or actually preparing that first cup of coffee, you know, getting the grounds and the, I have a machine and pouring in the water and, you know, watching the drip, 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 and finally have your coffee. And that's basically the highlight of the day. It's all downhill from there. And you sit there with your coffee and you look out the window and you contemplate, will life ever be the same? I mean, we're all kind of in this existential mood. And so I just thought, you know, like when we're growing up, they have those like Sanka commercials where they would just sit on the, <laughs> lakeside porch and sip the Sanka. That's right. And they, the best you know, part of waking up is Sanka in your cup. It was, in fact, the best part of waking up. You know, waking up is a privilege for sure right now, but I feel like, yeah, it's just like you do have a... The, the deep thoughts that you are having uh, over your first cup of coffee right now are quite surreal compared to what they were uh, six months ago. And I think that, you know, like everything else, uh, hopefully we will come out of this with a tremendous amount of perspective for what, in fact, are the truly little things in life. And, and you know, some of the forced time is helping it, but I, it is incredible as you describe the, the coffee-making part of it uh, and how important that is to my own successful day now. How are you sleeping right now? So I have reverted to the 22-year-old version of Joe House. I, I am staying up late. I, I'm up till like two o'clock in the like I'm in this crazy ritual right now. And some of it has to do with like when we get my so he's allowed he's he's been staying up till about 10. Mm-hmm. And then I need four hours of of my own decompression. And um not a lot of that is some of it's it's a mix of television and then you know, sort of media, online media stuff. I'm in this insane ritual where I'm not looking at Instagram until two in the morning. I get into bed. It's the last thing I do before I go to sleep. I'm sure there is something very, very wrong with this. Uh, but I get into bed. I put on my glasses. I'm, I'm under the covers and I'm looking at Instagram just to see what's happened in everybody else's life uh, during the day. And then I fall asleep. Just a sidebar on that. Do you think people are toning it down on Instagram? Because I feel like Instagram was the most show-offy of all the platforms, right? And I think we've all kind of 
realize that now is not the time to serve for vulgar displays of, you know, privilege, right? A hundred percent. I mean, at least the people I follow, I'm seeing their content, you know, the stuff that they're contributing to society. Um, but there isn't a lot of, Hey, I'm at my second house and we're going for a walk at the beach. Now there's none of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Cause every, you know, that, that's not the moment that we're in right now. Jay. <laughs> right. Cause, and, and, and we've seen, you know, the way the world works now, we've seen a couple instances where I think people's like, extreme Instagram posts like David Geffen on his yacht became oh. like international scandals. But we're, but I do feel we're in a place now where people are just a little bit more aware that the ephemeral, you know, wealth-based accumulation culture is just pretty vapid. Not that it wasn't completely vapid before, but we're going to get back to this place, I think, where, um, you know... I don't know. Maybe we're going to be showing off our, you know, beach villas pretty, you know, after this. I don't know. I don't know where. And it's not going to be that way. It's going to be these values, at least for people like us and in our circles and our extended, you know, people that we are fans of. Yeah. It's going to be these 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 family value things. Uh, I mean, maybe I, I am a sap. It's no, it's it's well <laughs> established. But I think some of the family value stuff that we're talking about, the time with our kids. Um, you know, the rituals of, of cooking and the rituals of like, you know, five o'clock we were done with work, like all of this, it's very weird. Um, early on in some of these conversations, I was saying, this feels to me like what my head thinks of as a 1950s housewife, the existence of a 1950s housewife where you're waking up or super early in the morning, you're basically sort of locked into the home hub. Over the course of the day, you're serving other people. You're in the service of other people throughout the day, and then you we're on, and then you're just on, on repeat. Uh, and the meals are the most important aspects of, of of that service. So, if you're to extend that strained metaphor, that, it's very strained. But if you extend that metaphor, then it would lead one to presume that you're recognizing that there's way too much um, uh, cultural. Uh, 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 Binding of you there that you're, uh, you know, defined to being only one thing and you want to break out of that and find your own independence and equality and all that kind of stuff. And so you are ready for the Joe House liberation. Is that right? It, it could be. That could be why I'm looking at Instagram at two in the morning. <laughs> I'm having the complete opposite experience. I, you know, my kids are up like chicken. So like there's no like getting around an early wake up here. I have to go to bed early and I'm having trouble making it through the second episode of the last dance, you know, I'm good for the first one. All right. Six, I'm in seven, give or take, you know, like, or whatever it is. Seven, eight was, yeah, a yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm having I, the, the odd number ones. I'm good. The even number ones, they've been a little struggle. This is nothing to say about the actual, you know, content. It's just, you know, my, my clock is off. So yeah. it usually turns out it's like a last dance is a two day affair for me at this point. So, well, sure. I mean, the, the 10 o'clock hour, that, that that can be a sleep hour. This also, I think, is has a link to how much alcohol is being consumed, because that, that's also for me. I also had an experience where I was watching one of them, and I hit something wrong on that ESPN app. It was bleeped out. And I was like, I want the cussing. Where's the cussing? Oh, yeah, yeah. This is the best part of the show. You need it. Yeah, my M- MJ dropping F-bombs about all his former uh, competitors. That That's the height of it. I sent you a note about something. I just want to ask you about this before you, you know, kick me out here. But Jose Andres, who is, of course, a chef of, you know, remarkable repute. And 
has DC connections. I, a number of restaurants here in DC. Number of restaurants has just, you know, with the charitable work that he's doing globally, and this is something that started years and years ago. This isn't some sort of reason. A decade. A decade. There's this sort of growing movement, it seems, that this is a guy that, because the transformative power of what he's doing and the actual tactile power of it, because he's actually just going and serving damn meals to people who need them, you know, might win a Nobel Prize one day. He's already been nominated. He was nominated for a Nobel Prize in 2018. And, you know, I think that there'll probably come a time when he gets nominated again. Maybe it'll come this year. But how remarkable would that be to have a chef win a Nobel Prize? What do you think of that? Well, I mean, the the sheer impossibility of the undertaking, you know, the 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 audacity to think that you could go into a place that has suffered some kind of disaster, create scale immediately to um, provide thousands of, of meals. Not, you know, they're not just doing meals for, for a couple hundred first responder folks, which all by itself would be a wonderful, wonderful gesture. No, he's, he's trying to feed the whole effing place in Haiti, in Puerto Rico, you know, and, 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 and out in California with the wildfires. I mean, they go into harm's way and then they immediately ramp up. They find kitchens of scale, ramp up with, with um, ingredients. They have a vision for, for how best to, to do this. It's an it's just really um, hard to fathom, and and they've been so good at it that they're all over the country here in the United States now trying to to service you know the the one one of the ill effects of this when and we it's being visited upon us in the news is how food unstable so many folks are and how you know people living paycheck to paycheck you know immediately finding themselves in food vulnerability. And, and this is, uh, you know, at the scale that Jose and his team are doing this one way, in addition to all the great stuff that food banks are doing. But, you know, these, these just incredible. The numbers are, are what's so um, impressive. And, and, you know, so the Nobel is uh, uh, what's outrageous about it. Yeah, I mean, listen, people have won Nobels for less. You know, I, I, I think that it would be an incredible achievement, obviously, uh, to do that. I always am struck by when something terrible is happening in the world. I'm like, oh, I wonder if you're going to see Jose Andre. And he's already there. He's been there for like a week before you even had that thought. I mean, when this pandemic was starting to just break in this country, he had a whole setup down for one of the quarantine ships. Like the people who were kind of stashed aboard one of these ships where they couldn't get off. He had set up a temporary construction there. And I find what's interesting about this is that, you know, as you said, it's, there's a food element to this, but it's really a problem solving thing. It's in a way of, it's sort of like, you know, if you're a, uh, uh, even if you're a conservative capitalist, this is kind of your dream. This is like private sector know-how and, you know, motivation to sort of, you know, solve problems. And he is somebody who I think is doing that on scale now, which is remarkable, you know? Uh, but I just want to go back to one thing you said about the food banks, which I think is a really important point of this. I think for a lot of folks, um, who might not be close to like an actual pandemic outbreak area, like a place where there are a lot of COVID patients. I think a lot of people for this became serious when they started to see the lines for the food banks. There was that yeah. really famous photograph of, I believe it was San Antonio, where it was like, it looked like a drive-in movie theater of thousands of cars right. being in line for food banks. And this was barely two weeks after the shutdowns began. 
And absolutely, I think like food insecurity and food vulnerability are you know critical issues in this country. And I think for this to become broad to sharp relief is you certainly would not want anyone to go through it as an educational exercise. But I think it's valuable for people to realize how many people are on the edge of that and what an incredible you know just situation that in a country with an embarrassment of success and riches that the United States is that you can still have that kind of you know, hunger. Yeah, right. And, and, you know, I, I don't want to go too far down the path of, you know, the, the, the policy aspects of this, cause I'm not well enough versed, but it does seem at least from the stories in my own experience that it's private, um, entities, there are partnerships, private and, and, and private, you know, public, the government is participating in, in some locales, but like the, the, to what I've observed, the vast majority of, you know, the, the food bank work, it's churches and, you know, private folks, you know, dedicating their own time and resources to making sure that, that, that people, you know, have the, the basics to, to, to eat. I mean, I, I don't see a, at, at scale on the government side. Is that what are you observing in that respect? You know, I, I definitely am not equipped to answer that in any kind of intelligent way. I, yeah. I do definitely feel like, you know, for many, many people who work in the world of the, the service sector and helping people out in need, all this situation is doing is bringing into sharper relief, bringing into focus issues that are, have always been there. Issues of privilege and issues of um, access and yes. technological access and all these kinds of things that persist in, you know, both healthcare food, education, all these things that were sort of being, wow, this is a big problem right now because you know not everybody has equal access to these kinds of things. Those things, these fissures have always been there. And I hope some good will come of it because we're all sort of seeing it because it's just right there. Um, but you know, it, I, I, I would, it's not accurate to say that this suddenly just happened. These things have all... That, that's right. And, and to your point, maybe this is the right way to wrap up, there, there are lessons learned, both in terms of the logistics, but in terms of the face of the need. And, you know, we all ought to have a responsible kind of uh, response and be prepared to ke keep meeting this need for as long as it persists. So just the last thing, I know that you're, you know, you don't want to deal in these hypothetical scenarios because you're trying to keep, you know, your mentality and, you know, you want to stay in uh, focus in the now. But, you know, everyone's talking about return to sports and sports with no fans and what's going to happen and when are we going to see events? Are they going to actually do the Masters in the fall and all that kind of good stuff? Yeah, I think about what I want to see return. And, you know, listen, there's a very obvious reason to return sports in any sort of capacity. And that is money. You know, we want to see these games back because, you know, there's money on the line, but to me, humanity is what makes these games. And that's what, you know, the experience is like the last big sporting event I went to in this country before the pandemic shutdown was the Daytona 500 with my son. I mean, there are a hundred thousand people at that. Oh thing, my God. Including the president of the United States. Yeah. Um, you know, the definition of a sea of humanity. But when I think about sports and what I want to see return is, you know, I can take or leave like playoff games and seeing like baseball players and all that stuff. It'd be great. But I'm, I just, you know, 
game day in a college football town, wandering through the parking lots, tailgating, all that kind of stuff, all those great smells, all that great stuff. And that's food culture as well, Joe. Yes, it is. That is a thing to like really hold on to as a goal here, because I think we might be vastly underestimating the value of like other, you know, human interaction experience in the crowd in the atmospherics of sports. I think it's a huge part of why we love this stuff. Well, and, and nothing's more, we've touched on, on this, this theme a couple of times. What's more like ritualistic, what traditions, you know, permeate, you know, the, the, the a sporting event more than what you're describing in terms of that college, uh, college football, college game day. It's a, it's a, it's a, you know, there are many days to it. The run up to it, the actual day, the actual game itself is, you know, like the, the fourth tier and the, and the level of importance around all the traditions and the rituals that people go through. Yeah. And I think it won't take long, you know, once these things start to get underway and, you know, there's going to be some NASCAR racing this weekend. I know they did the UFC the weekend before, but when you see something like a masters, maybe, or a big PGA tour event, or maybe an NBA playoff game, or maybe an NFL game in these kind of protected bubble, you know, no fans kind of environments. I think that we're in for a real awakening about what percentage of which the full experience involved crowds. And I, I think it's more than 50%. I really do. I, 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 you know, I was surprised. Brooks Kepka, the 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 great golfer, um, last week had had a quote in an interview about how impactful golf fans are, which mm-hmm. struck me as you know somewhat kind of laughable because you know there are these staid traditions uh, around the behavior, the etiquette, and in a golf tournament, and you know there is a. a you know, folks yelling out after a guy hits the ball, that's all frowned upon. The comment he made suggested that the energy that came from from fans had an impact on the, the competition. If you think about that, in, if that's true in golf, I mean, how is that going to play out with the two NBA teams playing in, in front of, you know, just the handful of folks that are that are taping it? Unquestionably. And also like environment to environment, it's different. And golf is kind of a perfect example of that because golf is a place like, all right, waste management, uh, uh, you know, open is quite a bit uh, world apart from Augusta National, right? That's a whole different vibe. And so place to place, the crowd energy is different. And you see people respond to it and don't respond to it. And people who know how to work crowds in every kind of sport and take motivation from this. When we just watched this, you know, this giant Jordan documentary and a huge part of it is like him, like summoning motivation sometimes from perceived slights that don't exist. I mean, can you think of anything more than like an antagonistic crowd? You know, that is a huge part of all this thing. And so, you know, it's, listen, I understand the motivations to bring it back. I was very curious as much as anybody to see in what manner they're able to do it. But I just feel like it is going to be such a distant cousin to what we know and love about these things. And, 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 and to, dovetail it to your show food is a huge part of it it really really is yeah no that's it's it's every bit the communal aspect of of you know convening with fellow fans for sports and convening for for the communal aspect of food and all we can say jason is it can't get here soon enough are you going to start asking people and maybe forgive me if you've already started doing this, but it used to be a tradition. You'd ask people like what their last meal would be. 
I, I stopped doing that. <laughs> no, no, I know you stopped doing that, but I think now you should start asking you what their first meal will be. You this know? is like, great. <laughs> when you leave, well, let, like, let's end with that. What's your first meal going to be? All right. Well, now you're really like putting me on the spot here. I should never have suggested this. I mean, look, I want to go eat a steak with friends. You know, I want to yes. care what the steakhouse is. I want an old classic probably in New York City. You know, I know that Luger got beaten up, but hell, I'm going back to Luger. You know, like, <laughs> I, I, you know, I just want that kind of elbow to elbow, loud, you know, maybe a little obnoxious kind of environment where you're just like, everything about it is just just noisy New York interaction and that kind of stuff. The food is almost secondary to it. That's what I crave. I want that kind of thing that candidly used to drive me crazy a little bit. I was never the person who wanted to go into the big packed restaurant. Now I want it badly. Isn't that funny? That's, I mean, that that's where we are. Mine is, uh, and I'll just repeat it. I want Korean food. I want to go to a Korean barbecue where you participate in the cooking, where you leave smelling of the food where it's a whole array of proteins and a whole array of, of um, doctrination, you know, through the uh, uh, banchan, the panchan, all of the uh, little accompaniments that, that you can come up with. You create your own mini meals out of it. Um, everybody there is serious eating. Yeah. Um, it is, you know, you're, you're crammed into a booth with your, with your pals. That's what I, I crave um, more than anything. And that's, that's going to be it. That's perfect. One, two, or three on my list. That's perfect. That's perfect. Yeah. Neither one of us said we want to eat a uh, turkey sandwich on a Delta flight to, you know, Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> that can wait. <laughs> that, that, that can wait. <laughs> Jason Gay, Wall Street Journal. We were overdue to come on. So thanks for coming on under these circumstances, my friend. Thank you, Joe, very much. Have a good one. All right. You too. homies there you go my thanks as always to our belly on the ground up there in new york jason gay make sure you check out the ringer and the link to the world central kitchen donation if you have the means and 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 the ability please make that donation as jason and i discussed jose andres and his team are all over the country doing the lord's work so please donate if you have the ability to do so. We are back next week, Hungry Homies. We're just rolling along here with House of Carbs. Everybody's eating right now, and they're eating at home, and we're doing the takeout. There's lots to cover. There's also some drinking going on, I believe. Until next week, my taste buds, let's stay hungry out there. Hungry Homies.